This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, have you been enjoying um, Rishi Sunak's? I, uh, well, it's not an inspiring speech, is it? I think it was a bit of a damp squib, but what was your take? Yeah, I mean, always great to just watch us once be, become one step closer to, you know, climate apocalypse. It's a fun way to spend a Wednesday afternoon, isn't it? <laughs> As you'll see, Rishi Sunak was talking about how brave he was to water down our climate commitments, or very odd. Um, tonight, we'll also be discussing an update on the case of Chris Cabber, who was shot by an armed police officer last year, Diane Abbott. Um, she's accused the Labour Party of running a fraudulent inquiry against her. And we'll be finishing with Ash Sarkar going up against a Tory MP. She did very well, as I'm sure you would expect. Straight on to that first story, Rishi Sunak has today dumped a number of climate change commitments. He used a speech from Downing Street to announce the changes. The real choice confronting us is do we really want to change our country and build a better future for our children? Or do we want to carry on as we are? I've made my decision. We are going to change. And over the coming months, I will set out a series of long-term decisions to deliver that change. And that starts today with a new approach to one of the biggest challenges we face, climate change. No one can watch the floods in Libya or the extreme heat in Europe this summer and doubt that it is real and happening. We must reduce our emissions. And when I look at our economic future, I see huge opportunities in green industry. The change in our economy is as profound as the Industrial Revolution and I'm confident that we can lead the world now as we did then. So I'll have no truck with anyone saying we lack ambition, but there's nothing ambitious about simply asserting a goal for a short-term headline without being honest with the public about the tough choices and sacrifices involved and without any meaningful democratic debate about how we get there. The Climate Change Committee have rightly said, you don't reach net zero simply by wishing it. Yet that's precisely what previous governments have done, both Labour and Conservative. No one in Westminster politics has yet had the courage to look people in the eye and explain what's really involved. That's wrong, and it changes now. I think that's what they call chutzpah, isn't it, or chutzpah? You've got someone who's saying, we are going to make decisions which make the world a better place for our children. We are going to be brave. What are you going to do? You're going to water down climate pledges for the sake of our children? Doesn't make any sense. Then you got talking about change. I'm the change candidate. Your government has been in power for 13 years. Then democratic mandates. In 2019, the Tory party went into that election promising net zero by 2050. Now he's saying, well, we're still committed to net zero by 2050. But if you're loosening all of these short-term pledges, then how does that help us get there? Um, that was setting the scene. That was Rishi Sunak setting the scene, I think, in a very, very disingenuous way. Let's move on to some of the actual announcements. So this was Sunak on the 2030 ban on the sale of new petrol cars. Today, I can set out details of what our new approach will mean for people. That starts with electric vehicles. We're working hard to make the UK a world leader. I'm proud that we've already attracted billions of new investments from companies like Tata's Jaguar Land Rover Gigafactory. And I expect that by 2030, the vast majority of cars sold will be electric. Why? 
because the costs are reducing, the range is improving, the charging infrastructure is growing. People are already choosing electric vehicles to such an extent that we're registering a new one every 60 seconds. But I also think that at least for now, it should be you, the consumer that makes that choice, not government forcing you to do it. Because the upfront cost still is high, especially for families struggling with the cost of living. Small businesses are worried about the practicalities. And we've got further to go to get the charging infrastructure truly nationwide. And we need to strengthen our own auto industry so we aren't reliant on heavily subsidized carbon intensive imports from countries like China. So to give us more time to prepare, I'm announcing today that we're going to ease the transition to electric vehicles. You'll still be able to buy petrol and diesel cars and vans until 2035. Even after that, you'll still be able to buy and sell them secondhand. So that was a big announcement really from today. That was sort of the headline that was leaked um, last night that's been talked about all day. We're going to talk about some of those responses a little bit later in the show. It was the case that the UK was really leading the world when it came to a ban on new petrol vehicles or combustion engine vehicles. Um, that was going to be phased out in 2030. It's now been pushed to 2035. That is the same as other European countries. It's not an outrage um, that we would be phasing them out in 2035 instead of 2030. What it is really is a missed opportunity, right? We were going to lead the world um, and the car companies, the car um, producers seem pretty pleased about that. You know, the idea that we would get this head start over and above um, our, our European neighbors and North America because we would have this shorter time frame to get to this target. Now that has gone um, and it seems very strange to say to become a world leader, we're going to have a less ambitious target, which is in line with our competitors. Surely if you want to be a world leader, you want to be ahead of our competitors, which is where we were before. And now we've gone back from that. I mean, the response from the car companies themselves is probably the most interesting part of this, which we will be going on to later. Um, so wait for that. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the other announcements that were made, though there were more. Next up, um, this is new plans for decarbonizing our homes. To get to net zero, we also need a fairer, better approach to decarbonizing how we heat our homes. We're making huge advances in the technologies that we need to do that, like heat pumps. But we need a balance between incentivizing businesses to innovate so heat pumps become even cheaper, more effective and more attractive, but without imposing costs on hard-pressed families at a time when technology is often still expensive and won't work in all homes. For a family living in a terraced house in Darlington, the upfront cost could be around £10,000. Now, even the most committed advocates of net zero must recognize that if our solution is to force people to pay that kind of money, support will collapse and will simply never get there. So I'm announcing today that we will give people far more time to make the necessary transition to heat pumps. We'll never force anyone to rip out their existing boiler and replace it with a heat pump. You'll only ever have to make the switch when you're replacing your boiler anyway and even then, not until 2035. And to help those households for whom this will be the hardest, I'm introducing a new exemption today so that they will never have to switch at all. Now, this doesn't mean I'm any less committed to decarbonizing our homes. Quite the opposite. But rather than banning boilers before people can afford the alternative, we're going to support them to make the switch. I'm announcing today that the boiler upgrade scheme 
which gives people cash grants to replace their boiler, will be increased by 50% to £7,500. There are no strings attached, the money will never need to be repaid, and this is one of the most generous schemes of its kind in Europe. The big announcement there was a weakening of the phasing out of gas boilers, so more opt-outs, and there's a bit more money available for people who do want to make the change. So funding from the boiler upgrade scheme will be going from five to seven and a half thousand pounds. Um, Sunak then went on to list a series of net zero proposals that he decided to scrap. The debate about how we get to net zero has thrown up a range of worrying proposals. And today I want to confirm that under this government, they will never happen. The proposal for government to interfere in how many passengers you can have in your car, I've scrapped it. The proposal that we should force you to have seven different bins in your home, I've scrapped it. The proposal to make you change your diet and harm British farmers by taxing meat, or to create new taxes to discourage flying or going on holiday, I've scrapped those too. And nor will we ban new oil and gas in the North Sea which would simply leave us reliant on expensive imported energy from foreign dictators like Putin. We will never impose these unnecessary and heavy-handed measures on you, the British people. Now, that was, without doubt, the most ridiculous part of the speech, because all of those policies he was scrapping, I'm going to scrap this policy, I'm going to scrap that policy, none of them were policies. None of them were within any government's plan. The Labour Party aren't suggesting them. No one is suggesting that we have to have seven bins. I don't know where this is coming from, right? So he's just sort of plucking out of the air all of these scare stories and saying, I'm scrapping them. They weren't, they didn't, they didn't exist. Dahlia, um, you know, so much to, to get into here. What's your sort of general initial takes um, on, on what Rishi Sunak is trying to do here? He is trying to make the next election uh, a referendum on net zero. Uh, he, the Conservatives saw that the ULES debate, uh, or at least they projected onto the, the Uxbridge, that very sort of razor-thin majority that the Tories won, you know, maintain their hold on Uxbridge with, they put that down to uh, net the, the question of the ULES policy. And so they saw what happened there and they've seen that as a microcosm for the next general election. And look, when you're talking about how do we get to net zero, there is a genuine question there about what is the balance between you know, state intervention and kind of state states essentially forcing um, people to change their consumption habits, forcing industry to change? How do we get to where we need to get to in the space of time that we have? And you can have, there is a valid critique of a policy like ULES, uh, saying that it unfairly burdens the, the a regular member of the public with getting to net zero when really we should be tackling our energy systems. We should be bringing back so many of these things that have been outsourced, including our energy systems and, and you know, housing systems, bring it back into public ownership so that they can be uh, brought in line with what we need in order to get to net zero. So there is an argument there against the ULES policy. But Sunak isn't going on that detail. What Sunak is doing is catering towards a kind of soft climate denialism, which doesn't outright deny that climate change is man-made and real and happening. But there's an element there where he's sort of gesturing towards this idea that 
governments are using the are you know over over hyping climate change or using climate change in order to exert control you know as part of a conspiracy to control what people do it's you know a kind of a smokescreen for government control and that is the underlying kind of um the underlying narrative that a lot of the anti-ULES protesting falls under. And I think that Sunak trying to say, you know, climate change is being used as an excuse to control the British people, it speaks to that very particular kind of, you know, conservative British individualism and sense of individual liberty that is very disconnected from the broader questions of freedom and liberty that are thrown up by what by climate breakdown. And so I think that's kind of what he's he's toying with and he's sort of setting up for this net zero election where it's you know free market conservatives who care about your personal liberty, who care about you being able to say and do whatever you want and big government labor party who are going to use the culture war, use climate change, use whatever in order to interfere and control um, and tell people what what to do. And so I think that's the kind of dynamic he is trying to to set up. But obviously, the stakes are incredibly high because the time is, you know, time is ticking. The clock is ticking on how long we have to actually get our house in order when it comes to achieving net zero. And Rishi Sunak is trying to manufacture resistance to uh, a net zero policy that isn't there in his own party. You know, 76% of people who are planning to support the Conservatives in the next election support reaching net zero by 2050. And Rishi Sunak, in order, because he sees it as his one way of winning um, the next election, is actually trying to radicalize his own membership and his own base away from a, pol- a set of policies or at least an, an overall government aim that they broadly support. Because, of course, Rishi Sunak said you can't get to net zero by wishing it. But then, ironically, he went on to do exactly that, which is to say, instead of actually putting in concrete incentives, apart from the one that he outlined for heat pumps, instead of actually putting out concrete incentives and making it possible for people to make the necessary transition, which shouldn't be just down to choice. It should be a necessary transition into a decarbonized um, economy and a decarbonized society. Instead of actually outlining that program, I'm just going to leave it to this amorphous idea of personal uh, choice, which is exactly which is doing exactly what he warned against earlier on in his speech, which is saying that you can't wish net zero into existence. That's exactly the kind of thing that he's betting on. And I think that Labour should absolutely hammer him for it. It's very interesting politically, because I mean, obviously, they're looking for a wedge issue, right? What Rishi Sunak saw and what some sort of backbench Tory MPs saw is that in Uxbridge, um, ULES was a successful wedge issue. um, And they want to create that when it comes to a general election. And they want to make something polarised, which hasn't really been that polarised up to now, which is climate policy. In the UK, we've had relative consensus between the two main parties that climate change is is a governmental priority, essentially. Now, you might sort of argue whether or not they have lived up to their their words, but when it's come to speaking to the electorate, neither seems to be sort of saying, or up to now, neither is saying, oh, well, they're too keen um, on tackling climate change. That hasn't been a dividing line. And, And here, Rishi Sunak is essentially trying to create one by going against his own government. So, you know, normally when you're looking for a wedge issue, if you're the government, you say the opposition wants to do this scary thing that we're not otherwise going to do. So 
let's look at, say, last week, for example, when Keir Starmer suggested that potentially to get a returns deal with the European Union, we would accept um, some sort of quota of asylum seekers who are on the continent via safe routes. Now, I think that's a good policy, as I said on, on the show, but that is a wedge issue which the Tories can exploit because it's something which isn't in place now. It's not government policy, and there will be some people in the public opposed to it, and so they can shout about that, say, you should be very scared about Labour introducing this scary new policy. The problem they had with climate change is Labour and the Tories had the same policy, right? So Labour's policy on climate change was basically the Tories' policy on climate change, other than that sort of £28 billion, which um, is being promised by the Labour Party. But that's not something which is going to increase costs on anyone. So to create this wedge issue, the government have had to completely U-turn and scrap all of their existing policy up to now to try and make some space between them and Labour. And that's essentially what we're seeing. They're trying to say, well, uh, Labour are going to be so scary because they're going to they're going to rule out new fuel and new new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. And then someone's like, "Well, that's our policy." Oh God, we're going to have to change our policy then, which is what we're seeing right now. Very very bizarre form of government. Those plans we just discussed were leaked to the BBC last night. So we've already seen um, some pretty strong reactions. Nick Stern wrote the first UK government commissioned report on the economics of climate change. He said this. It is the opposite of good economics. Chopping and changing will raise serious questions with businesses who see a government who cannot be trusted to follow through on policy commitments, be they climate or otherwise. So he's not impressed at this late in the day U-turn. Lord Daben has also spoken out. He was until recently the chair of the Climate Change Committee. That's a statutory body um, created to assess whether the government is on track to meet its net zero commitments. The Climate Change uh, Committee has shown quite clearly that uh, the dates which we've got, for example, for bringing in uh, electric motor cars will actually save people money. It will be against the cost of living crisis. The fact that they haven't been able to extend the offshore wind because of government stupidity will increase the cost of people's energy. Climate change uh, battle against climate change is part of the battle against the cost of living crisis. And to do the things that we're suggesting are going to be extremely damaging. And no one will believe the government in the future. These were pledges, commitments, and they are necessary to reach net zero by 2050, which is a statutory requirement. So the government will be in the courts. It's worth noting that Lord Deben is a Conservative peer, so those were pretty strong words. And that point about the courts is also an interesting one. It's a legal requirement that the government should be on track for net zero by 2050. And if this uh, makes that unrealistic, they'll either have to change their policies or change the law. More Tory on Tory attacks came from Boris Johnson. He set the targets in the first place, so is unsurprisingly unhappy. He said this. This country leads on tackling climate change and in creating new technology. The green industrial revolution is already generating huge numbers of high-quality jobs and helping to drive growth and level up our country. We cannot afford to falter now or in any way lose our ambition for this country. You sort of heard Rishi Sunak responding to some of those comments directly in the clip we showed you. He said, well, it's not ambitious to, to, to make people poorer. Um, and also, there's no point in just setting an arbitrary target without a plan to get there. That's basically what he's accusing Boris Johnson of. And perhaps more interesting, though, than opposition from politicians is opposition from industry. So Ford has invested £430 million in UK development and manufacturing with further funding promised to meet the 2030 targets. This is investment in electric vehicles. And in response to news of Sunak's plan, 
Ford released this statement. This is the biggest industry transformation in over a century, and the UK 2030 target is a vital catalyst to accelerate Ford into a cleaner future. Our business needs free things from the UK government, ambition, commitment, and consistency. A relaxation of 2030 would undermine all three. Ford wasn't alone in condemning the government's decision. Jaguar, Land Rover, BMW, the motoring charity, the RAC Foundation, um, they have all condemned the move. But speaking to the BBC's World at One, Jacob Rees-Mogg was dismissive. Of course Ford is arguing to get taxpayer money. But I don't want Ford to get taxpayer money. I want it to produce cars that are economic. And this is the point. If their electric cars are so brilliant, there will be a market for them without any government help and government subsidy. We didn't change from the horse and carriage to the internal combustion engine because of government regulation. We did it because it was cheap, effective, and people wanted it. And that should be the approach for the motor manufacturers now. If they make a good enough product, it will sell. That's very stupid. Very, very stupid comment there from Jacob Rees-Mogg, right? And it also ignores, I mean, basic economics, because basic economics, you have the idea of externalities, right? So even if you are a free market economist, you're supposed to say, yes, free markets can be good because it means that you have sort of supply meeting demand. People will, um, you know, vote with their pockets and choose the best product. And that means that companies can sort of compete on, on those grounds. But you also recognize that there are externalities. So costs aren't only borne by the consumer or the producer. The rest of the rest of us, if, if people keep buying fuel vehicles, petrol vehicles, that contributes to climate change. And that's why we need the government to get involved. This isn't just an interaction between the consumer and the producer of cars because other people are involved. That's why you have to have government intervention. So it's just he's just speaking on a completely different plane when it comes to this. You know, even neoliberal economics, I did economics for a year in university. It was the most sort of neoliberal economics you can imagine, neoclassical, right? They still recognize the importance of recognizing that externalities um, exist. And so government intervention is required, right? Rees-Mogg also missed a wider point about the problem with Sunak's U-turn. It's one that Aston Martin boss Andy Palmer explained here. It puts the UK into a very difficult uh, position because who wants to invest in a country that continuously changes its mind, changes its policy? A lot of companies have invested a lot of money on the basis of a relatively brave UK going five years, five years ahead of everybody else but allowing our indigenous industry to, to invest and, and make sort of world-leading opportunities ahead of that. And that's really what Ford was saying. So a great deal of disappointment in, in, the, in this government, this government that set the 2030 uh, deadline, in them reneging on that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's raising a lot of questions about the investability of the UK. So I think that seems to be sort of the point at which there is the most consensus on when it comes to both commentators and business, that whether or not you think 2035 or 2030 was the right date to sort of rule out new combustion engines, changing that date is the worst thing you can possibly do. Because basically what the UK have been saying for ages is, you know, if you're in the electric car industry, move to the UK. We've got this very ambitious date where we're banning combustion engines, which means that you're going to have a really big market in the UK, right? Because you're not going to have to compete with internal combustion engines. Everyone is going to be buying electric cars. So that means you've got this interest in investing in Britain. Lots of companies have started investing in Britain so that they can manufacture electric vehicles here. That should give us a global leadership role. Then all of a sudden, after these companies have invested millions and millions of pounds, the Tories have said, oh, actually, that policy that we made, we're now no longer following through on. Now, what confidence does that give anyone in investing 
in the Tory party. You know, you've got this this long-term target, this this long-term guarantee essentially that you've had about your investments, then all of a sudden the prime minister works out, oh, there was this by-election that we managed to win because people managed to polarize um, the debate on you, Les. So we're going to completely throw up in the air everyone's long-term business plans. Right? That's not a particularly sensible way of governing if you want to be at the leading edge of uh, a growing industry, electric car manufacturing. Um, Sunak was asked about this opposition um, in his press conference today. And here's what he had to say about corporations turning on the Tory party. The best thing I can do for business is ensure that we actually continue to deliver net zero because it has the consent of the British public. And as you can see in other countries around the world, when people have tried to go too fast, haven't had an open and honest conversation with the country, they've ultimately had to change course. That's not the right thing to do. And that's what we're doing today. We're putting in place the right policies that will ensure that we get to net zero, bring people along with us. And that's what ultimately will give businesses the certainty that they need to invest. You mentioned a couple of specific things, the, the time frame for transitioning electric vehicles. As I pointed out, 2035, that's the same target as that in France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Canada, Australia, California. I can go on. That is the global mainstream target. In an industry that is global in nature with imports and exports that we are integrated into, it's hard for anyone to say that that's somehow putting us at a disadvantage. I also think what the auto industry wants us to deliver, which we will now be able to, is our mandate to get from here to there. Because as I said, this is about 2035 is one aspect of it. But between now and then, we are going to make progress in transitioning to electric vehicles. And we're working with industry, put in place the pathway to get there that they are incredibly supportive of. It's quite a sophisticated argument in a way that Rishi Sunak is making here. So even if sort of businesses are annoyed in the short term, what he is guaranteeing is that there will be support for the net zero transition. So there won't be some backlash down the line. And that will ultimately make their business plans more sustainable because he's saying, if we were to impose too many upfront costs on the electorate, then even if I were to commit to this, it would, you know, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't last because there'd be such widespread opposition. The problem there is that Rishi Sunak is sort of talking about public support for net zero policies as if he has no influence on that. And I think what's clearly happening here, and it's sort of demonstrated more than anything by him listing out a bunch of policies that no one has even suggested and saying he's ruling them out, he is trying to polarise the debate on climate change. So to say, I'm working in the interest of green industry because I'm making sure there is public support for green policy He's actually trying to polarise the public when it comes to green policy. So just as much, actually, as sort of moving the deadline from 2030 to 2035, if I was, you know, a CEO of a company thinking of investing in Britain, the most, the, the thing I'd be most worried about is, you know, I would have probably looked at Britain before and said, oh, actually, Britain is one of these rare countries where there is relative consensus about climate policy, which means it's safe to invest here. Now, if you see that the Tory party is guaranteed to be trying to polarise the public on climate for probably the next decade, you know, if they're going to opposition. That, to me, is a reason not to invest here. So it, it does seem pretty risky if you want Britain to, to have a transition to net zero, which is easy, successful, and which means that we have sort of industries here which actually give people jobs. So this seems to me to be playing politics over economics, whereas Rishi Sunak is trying to say it's the precise opposite. Um, let's go to one more commercial venture who is coming out against the government and its energy supplier, E.ON, and responding to Sunak's decision to slow down the phasing out of gas boilers, as well as other net zero commitments. Its CEO, Chris Norbury, said this. 
This is a misstep on many levels from a business perspective. Companies wanting to invest in the UK need long-term certainty to create the jobs and economic prosperity the country needs. Equally, in our homes and communities, we risk condemning people to many more years of living in cold and drafty homes that are expensive to heat. In cities clogged with dirty air from fossil fuels, missing out on the economic regeneration this ambition brings. Net zero is an opportunity to transform our economy and the lives of people across the country and the government needs to think again before abandoning our climate commitments for this decade. Super interesting. Now you might be watching this. But I thought it was. I thought it was big business that was stopping us with this climate transition. I suppose what this is showing is that there are different interests among big business, right? Obviously, you know, him ruling out um, blocking um, new developments in the North Sea. That's going to be welcomed by the likes of BP. I assume also the likes of BP are going to be quite pleased that people will still be using petrol in their cars for for decades to come. So there will be some businesses happy about this, some businesses upset about this. I think it also does show you something, I suppose, about the political economy of climate transition. So Joe Biden, what he has done in America is basically the only thing he could pass in the Congress were bungs to business to help with the climate transition. Now, people have critiques of that, right? They say, why are we giving these bungs to business to, to help with the climate transition? Why don't we just tax them? Now, I'm completely sympathetic to that. But I suppose the decision he's made and the decision, you know, some of the left Congress people have made as well when they're supporting him is to say, well, it's, you know, even even if we have to give some money to businesses, it's better that we get them on board with the climate transition than have them opposed to it. And what this, I suppose, is, is demonstrating is that in many ways, many companies, through complete self-interest, you know, it's, it's not because they really want to help society at large. No, they're interested in their profit motive. But it just so happens that a significant number of businesses have seen that the climate transition with government policies as they are can be in their interests. And now suddenly Rishi Sunak is, is changing that. Obviously, I would prefer tax the businesses, make them pay for the climate transition. But paying businesses to help us with the climate transition is better than not having a climate transition at all. We've got a quick break now, but we've got more stories for you coming up on Chris Cabot, Diane Abbott, Ash Sarkar, and more. So stay tuned. The British media isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't meant to tell you facts or give useful context. It doesn't even try to tell the truth. As housing costs spiral out of control, living standards plummet. And the climate chokes in the hands of big business. Right-wing media wants us to direct our fear and anger at society's most vulnerable. Backed by billionaires and funded by corporate greed. All they want is to protect the super-rich at all costs. But we are people-powered. In the face of obscene wealth and influence, our supporters help Navarra's truthful, independent journalism reach as many people as possible. Our supporters are the reason we can report truthfully on what it takes to build a society that works for everybody. We're entirely free to access without ad partnerships, sponsored content, or paywall. Over 360,000 of you have subscribed to our YouTube channel. Navarro Live now broadcasts every weeknight. So far this year, our videos have been viewed over 36 million times. To be ready for next year, we need just 5,000 of you to join our regular supporters and back our work. So help build people-powered media. Join our regular supporters today and donate just one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navarromedia.com forward slash support. Let's do this together. That's right. 2024 will be a big year. Big elections are on the horizon. So we're hoping to ramp up our operations here at Navarra with the help of another 5,000 supporters. Could you be one of them? 
As you just heard, that link is navaramedia.com slash support, and it's in the description box below. Um, thank you so much. If you are already a regular supporter, we really, really do appreciate it, and we're trying to build that supporter base. So please um, do consider signing up. Let's go straight on to our next story. The Metropolitan Police officer involved in the killing of Chris Cabba has been charged with murder. In September last year, 24-year-old musician and expectant father Chris Cabba was shot and later died in hospital. A single bullet fired by a firearms officer went through Cabba's windscreen and hit him in the head. Cabba was killed after an automatic number plate recognition camera identified the Audi he was driving as having been involved in a previous firearms incident. However, the car was not his. After being chased by an unmarked police car with no lights or sirens, Cabba was boxed in in a residential street in South London. It was then that the fatal shot was fired. The officer involved cannot be named for legal reasons, but the decision to charge them follows a seven-month investigation into the killing by the Independent Office for Police Conduct. The officer is set to appear in Westminster Magistrates Court on Thursday morning. The impact of Cabba's killing was immense, contributing to the collapse in public confidence in the Metropolitan Police and sparking protests in London. Responding to the decision to charge the officer with murder, Cabba's family said, This, Chris was so very loved by our family and all his friends. He had a bright future ahead of him, but his life was cut short. Our family and our wider community must see justice for Chris. We welcome this charging decision, which could not have come too soon. Now we await the trial of the firearms officer without delay, and hope and pray that justice will be served. Head of the Crown Prosecution Service Special Crime Division Rosemary Ainsley said this about the case. Following a thorough review of the evidence provided by the IOPC, the CPS has authorised a charge of murder against a Metropolitan Police officer following the death of Chris Cabber. Mr Cabber died after he was struck by a single bullet in Streatham Hill, South London. The CPS reminds all concerned that criminal proceedings against the officer are active and that he has the right to a fair trial. It is extremely important there should be no reporting, commentary or sharing of information online which could in any way prejudice these proceedings. Now, as that statement says, this is a live criminal case, so we won't comment on it further at this point, but we will be following this story closely as it develops. Let's go to a story that we, we can comment more extensively on. Diane Abbott is Britain's first black woman MP and a long-time campaigner for social justice. But she's now accused the Labour Party of a stitch-up and of trying to oust her as candidate for her Hackney North constituency in the next election. In April, Abbott had the whip removed for comments she made on race in a letter published in The Observer. In that letter, she made a distinction between racism, which she said was suffered by black people, and prejudice, which she said could be experienced by Irish, Jewish and traveller people, as well as redheads, people with ginger hair. Now, it wasn't her best moment. It was an offensive letter, but she did immediately apologise, saying the letter was sent in error. And she also acknowledged that, quote, racism takes many forms and it is completely undeniable that Jewish people have suffered its monstrous effects and as have Irish people, travellers and many others, unquote. At the time, the Labour Party opened an investigation into her comments. But in a statement published on Twitter, Abbott has now said this. The internal Labour Party disciplinary against me is fraudulent. I was told by the chief whip to actively engage with the investigation. But the Labour whips are no longer involved. It is now run entirely out of the Labour Party HQ, which reports to Keir Starmer, and there is no investigation. This is the same Keir Starmer who almost immediately pronounced my guilt publicly. 
This completely undermines any idea that there is fairness or any natural justice. It is procedurally improper. Abbott is right that Starmer did pronounce on her guilt publicly. Here's what he said after the publication of her original letter in April. What she wrote yesterday, I utterly condemn. And um, I said uh, we would tear out anti-Semitism by its roots. I meant it. And that's why we acted so swiftly yesterday. Um, I think it's a mark of how far the Labour Party has changed, that we acted so swiftly and that we take it so seriously. But I condemn what she said. According to Abbott, though, the investigation hasn't actually been about anti-Semitism. In her statement, she writes this, The Labour Party has not charged me with anti-Semitism because they know it is untrue. As someone who has fought all forms of racism all my life, I would consider it a very serious allegation. Instead, it has been used to smear me, my reputation and decades of anti-racist work. Abbott also alleges that Labour HQ has taken control of the constituency party in Hackney North. She says this, Fully aware of the overwhelming support for me in my local constituency of Hackney North and Stoke Newington, in July the regional party apparatus intervened into my local party to stop its elected officials from being able to communicate with local members. Recently, the London Regional Office closed down the executive committee in my constituency party and replaced its principal offices. In effect, the Labour Party apparatus has decapitated the elected leadership of the constituency party to install its own hand-picked personnel and replace me as the candidate prior to the next election. This is what some have clearly wanted all along. Abbott ends her statement with this. I am the longest serving black MP, yet there is widespread sentiment that as a black woman and someone on the left of the Labour Party, that I will not get a fair hearing from this Labour leadership. On Sky News, Shadow Business Secretary Jonathan Reynolds was asked about Abbott's allegations. Diane Abbott, uh, suspended from the Labour Party after being accused of anti-Semitism. She has accused Kestama of crushing democracy by the investigation into her. What, what's your response to that? I would reject that entirely. We've had some issues to sort out in the Labour Party. We wouldn't be where we are as a potential next government in this country if we hadn't addressed them. Diane had a well-publicised incident that resulted in the disciplinary action that has happened. You know, sh she did that. No one forced her to write that letter. There's a process that's now followed. People will know, I think, following uh, the EHRC report to the Labour Party, there was a big change to our disciplinary processes. It has removed a sort of political element of that. It's an independent process. I don't know where any investigation is at, even as a leading member of the Shadow Cabinet. That's how it should be. So I don't know where that investigation is at, but I do think the public expect political parties to, to exercise high standards and to police those standards. My colleague Ash Sarka was also on that show last night. Here's how she responded to Reynolds' claims. So I really have to disagree with him there because when you look at Diane Abbott's letter, which she just published, one of the things that she says is that the investigation into her conduct got moved to Labour HQ, directly controlled by Keir Starmer, and then nothing's happened. And there is a clear difference between how she's been treated. Um, she wrote a letter which I think had some really offensive content. She immediately apologised. She still suspended from the Labour whip, whereas Neil Coyle, who made some very racially derogatory comments uh, to a journalist, he's just had the Labour whip restored. So either I think you treat all matters of racism the same and you treat it with the same disciplinary process, there are the same punishments for bad behaviour, um, or you kind of have to throw your hands up and admit that, and admit that you take one form of racism a lot more seriously than another. Um, and I just think that's morally abhorrent. Um, Dahlia, I want your view on this. I have to say, I mean, I find the whole, I find the whole saga just a bit depressing. Like, I mean, it, it is, you know, it's difficult to say you sent a letter by accident. What was in Diane Abbott's sort of original letter was, you know, very problematic to say the least. Um, but I also have no doubt that, you know, 
the Labour Party were absolutely delighted to suspend someone who is on the left of the party. So, I mean, where do you stand on this? The contents of the letter, it's not just that it was offensive, it was just, it was incorrect. You know, this idea that I think especially the travellers saying that travellers don't experience racism. I mean, that's pretty clear that they do actively now in the present, including by the Labour Party. Um, So it was, it was just inaccurate and it did, it was, it was not, it didn't betray an, an understanding of how racism has historically operated. I'm not going to get into the conjecture of why or how that letter got sent, but you know we can we can all agree on that. It is also true that the way that the Labour Party is behaving right now is not in any way motivated by a genuine understanding of or desire to fight racism. It is a continuation of what is has clearly been true throughout Starmer's tenure, which is that his number one public enemy, it's not the Tories, it's not the energy companies, it's not the people who actually are dispossessing Brit- British people, it's left-wing women of colour. You know, we see how he's treated Diane Abbott, we see how he's treated Zara Sultana, Absana Begum in particular. And what we are seeing is essentially the the begin where the position that they're starting from is not we care about racism and we want to come up with a process to deal with that with when our you know MPs say or do things that are racially insensitive in public. The starting point is how do we get rid of any remnants that were left by Corbyn's leadership, i.e., any remnants of the left wing of the party, whether it's in their MPs. Or, or in their members. That's the starting point. And all they needed was for something to fall in their lap that they can then, ironically, given that they're saying that the disciplinary process is now not political anymore, it's in fact deeply political. And we can see that from how Diane has talked about what has happened since she had the whip restored and the way that this investigation process has, has rolled out. I think it's very clear, of course, that there is a hierarchy of racism within the Labour Party. But I want to add something to that, which is that even though there is this hierarchy of racism and that it's clear that on the surface, some forms of racism are taken more seriously than others, it's really important to remember that it's just on the surface. It's a very superficial form of solidarity. Um, Because when we actually look at you know, the growing anti-Semitism throughout this country that is especially coming from, you know, the far right, the rising far right politics, we aren't seeing any cohesive prioritization of how to tackle that in this country. We're not seeing it, we're certainly not seeing it from the Conservative Party. We're not seeing it from the Labour Party. In fact, what we're seeing is a desire to separate the increase in racism that is a result of the far right, of the rise of the far right, particularly against refugees, against migrants, and we're trying. And even though that always comes up along with a rise in anti-Semitism, we are seeing both parties actually paying lip service to the kind of virulent, violent, and dehumanizing politics towards migrants and refugees that are emerging from a growth in far right politics. And though that kind of anti-migrant racism and anti-refugee racism always rises hand in hand with a form of anti-Semitism. And we know that that's the case. We have seen it. Um, you know, any read, read anyone's um, anyone who write, you know, Hope Not Hate, all of these different organizations that write about the increase in the rise in the far right, um, both in kind of 
broadcast media, particularly sort of on YouTube, but also in you know, in, in online spaces, we aren't seeing an actual genuine commitment to tackling that very serious form of racism, including anti-Semitism. It is only a form, it's a form of solidarity, a superficial solidarity that is only exercised insofar as it can be politically useful. And as a form of solidarity, that's a very poisoned chalice. So even though there is a hierarchy of racism, I think it's important to understand as well that being at the top of that so-called hierarchy doesn't actually confer genuine anti-racist solidarity. Let's go straight on to our next story. The UN General Assembly is in session and some leaders from the Global South are using the occasion to renew their demand for reparations. Among them is Guyana President Irfan Ali, who before taking the stage in New York, spoke to Richard Maidley. Why should somebody who maybe had an ancestor seven or eight generations ago, long before they were a twinkle in their great-great-great-great-grandparents' eye, why should they have to pay now for what an ancient ancestor did? Or why should they apologize for what an ancestor did centuries ago? Why do they still carry that burden? Oh, it's not a burden at all. You are one of the beneficiary of that uh, slave trade. So this is not a burden. You should uh, be concerned and you should uh, pay because you today are still benefiting from the greatest indignity to a human being, and that is the slave trade. And not only did you benefit during the slave trade and your country developed, but look at what it caused the developing world. During slavery, resources was used to build your country, build up your capacity. You were able to then become competitive. You were able to invest in mechanization, and developing countries like ours were left behind. So you should be very concerned because you are a prime beneficiary of the uh, exploits of slavery. I think that was very well put. You know, the idea why this isn't just about our ancestors is essentially because in the West, or countries which participated in the slave trade, we are still benefiting to some degree um, from the slave trade because that's one of the reasons why Western countries ended up getting rich. And it's also one of the reasons um, why some countries in the global South remain rather poor, right? So it's it's not just an issue from the past, it's also an issue in the present, which is why um, the demand for reparations is you know, fairly strong. I think there's a, there's a very strong moral case for it, politically rather difficult to make happen, but there's undeniably an incredibly strong moral case for it. Um, there was a moment though in this interview that really got Richard Maley riled up. And that was the idea, not that we transfer money um, to countries in the global South, but that Britain's royal family might be involved in any reparations deal. One of the points you're going to be making today is about our royal family. And you feel that um, it's not just about uh, the, the finances involved here in terms of reparations for slavery, it's about the gestures. And you think that the British royal family should make a big gesture, don't you? What do you mean? Hand over a palace to your country? Well, no, we don't want to hand, we don't want the British to hand over a palace that we built. You know, if you go into many of the palaces in, in, in Britain, you will see the lovely green heart wood from Guyana. You will see the, the sweat, tears, and blood of, of, of the slaves who were exploited. So what do you and, want? And the revenue that was, that was earned from their exploitation. So we are not asking for a palace. We are asking for justice and a fair form of justice to the ancestors and to the, uh, and to the greatest injustice that has ever done been done to human beings. We look forward we're to your... not going to. We're not asking for palaces. No. You can enjoy the palace, and when we visit you, we'll also enjoy it. Again, another super articulate answer, I think. You know, 
we don't want your palaces for one and we built a shed load of the stuff in your palaces, but we'll come visit your palaces. What, what we want is justice. You know, <laughs> we want um, some of your wealth, which you have because of your exploitation of us, and then we can come and visit your palaces on equal terms. We don't, we don't, we don't want your palaces shipped over to Guyana. Obviously, though, you know, the most notable part of that clip wasn't what the guest said. It was Richard Maley doing this. It was like a head teacher talking to a naughty child, and you have to remember here: this wasn't just this wasn't you know. Often on, they've done it to me, right? Often as a left winger, you go on these shows and they sort of speak to you like you're an idiot. This was the president, the elected president of a sovereign country. And Richard Madeley is speaking to him like he's a naughty schoolboy, right? It's very, very, I mean, offensive. I mean, that is very, very offensive. You do need to speak with some respect to elected presidents. You can't just sort of bang the table and get super angry and lose your cool. I mean, it was the most outstanding arrogance you know, the, it, Richard Madeley would not, first of all, he wouldn't even be interviewing, you know, Macron or Biden or or Trudeau. And if he was interviewing them, he certainly wouldn't speak to him in the way that he spoke to the president of, of Guyana, which shows the kind of the, the condescension and the, the contempt and frankly, the racism with which political leaders from the global south um, are treated. I think that it's very interesting here because Reparations is not a culture war issue. Reparations is an issue of economic justice. It's an issue of human beings and resources and wealth were stolen in a way that is inextricably linked to the kinds of inequalities that we see today. And there is a moral and economic and political case to be made that that wealth needs to be returned. The value of the wealth that was stolen needs to be returned. Obviously, there's a part of the slave trade that can never be compensated for, um, and that is the theft of human bodies and the torturing of human bodies that was a, that essentially built this country. Um, but we can, you know, we can talk numbers and numbers have been thrown around. It's obviously in the trillions because not only was huge amounts of money and natural resources stolen then, they continue to be stolen now in the form of illegitimate global debt. So that is actually a very hard economic issue. And yet I think it's very interesting that it's essentially being converted and metabolized as a cultural issue by a jumped up celebrity talk show host who has no business being involved in what should be the hard hitting political journalism of interviewing an elected president from Guyana, a country that, again, whose human beings and natural resources fuel the development of this country about what we do with the on ongoing injustice. Um, but I think the reason that a Richard Madeley gets so offended, you know, personally offended by this to the point where he's banging on the table, not like a school teacher, but actually like a school child, um, is because it goes to the very heart of the myth that Britain tells about itself, that, you know, in fact, most countries of the West tell about themselves, which is that, they, through, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, um, resourcefulness and through pure intelligence, stole a march on the rest of the world. What they don't want to believe is that the development of this country and the ongoing existence of this country as a wealthy and so-called developed nation is inextricably and inseparably linked from the violence and dispossession that this country forced so much of the world's um, population into. And it just, it, they cannot square that with the image that they have of Britain as this country that stands alone, that pulled itself up 
itself up by its bootstraps and that just inherently deserves its status. And that's why there is this inherent racism in this entire conversation, because it's ultimately this belief that countries that are predominantly white people um, are full of smarter and better people who naturally deserve the wealth that they have, rather than that was something that they stole from the rest of the world and that the rest of the world is entitled to take that wealth back. Um, so I'm not surprised that he is so emotional. I just don't think that if we had, if if produce, if our if our broadcast media took seriously the politics of the global south, he wouldn't have been interviewing a president to begin with because he's not a serious journalist. Let's go to our final story. Ash Sarkar has appeared on Sky News up against one of the least coherent Tory. MPs. Now, that's a pretty um, challenging title to get because the competition is tough. It's Andrea Jenkins. In my red wall northern seat, um, they don't buy the net zero. Um, to me, you know, if it's, it's not only the um, freedom argument, it's the economic argument. To me, people were told what to do in lockdown. We shouldn't tell them how to heat their home, what cars to drive. You know, um, so as a freedom-loving conservative, that's, you know, I find that very excellent. But besides that, the economic argument, you know, I don't want to make people poorer. I don't want the working class voters to have to pay for the middle classes to drive their electric cars, Sophie. Yeah, I think that's a load of nonsense, really. I think the thing that people care about is cost of living and a lot of these exactly. green measures and a lot of these green measures would make things cheaper. If we had an way? adequate insulation programme in this country, we've got some of the leakiest housing stock in Europe. That would bring down people's energy costs. But if we had, not if the we same had, as if we had, green well, energy. Wait, I listen to you very patiently, so you've got to listen to me now. If we keep people reliant on fossil fuels, which are subject to the kind of external shocks that we've seen with the war in Ukraine, which sent people's gas bills soaring, we're more vulnerable than if we've got domestically produced green energy, whether that's solar, whether that's wind, whether that's hydro. There may need to be some nuclear capacity so that we're at that base load, but I think that we can be moving a lot faster to have a decarbonized energy grid than we are. And the thing which winds me up is that we've had a decade of wasted opportunities. We had interest rates at historic lows. It would have been very cheap for the government to borrow. But then Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng crashed the economy into a wall. And now it's going to be a lot more expensive to do those things. We keep kicking the can down the road. We keep booting this problem into the long grass, hoping it will get better and it won't. And you know the thing about cost of living that's going to get worse with climate change. Obviously, that was incredibly well put, right? Especially this idea, you know, if, if over the last 10 years, what we'd have done is use those sort of record low interest rates to fund the insulation of millions and millions of homes, then we would have been in a much, much, much better situation to deal with the cost of living crisis when the price of oil went up after Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, that's also just talking about, you know, the money in your pocket, right? Obviously, the big issue with climate change is that the costs of climate change are going to be absolutely enormous. So basically all economic studies of, of climate change, they all vary in terms of what figure they put on it. But what they all seem to agree on is that dealing with climate change now is going to be cheaper than dealing with its consequences later. Floods, very expensive. Hurricanes, very expensive. All of the things we associate with catastrophic climate change are very, very expensive. So if um, our government has to spend a little bit more now to transition our economy to a green one, um, that will um, end up paying for itself in the long term. As I say, very well put. Um, let's see how Andrea Jenkins pushed back. 
what did the Labour government actually do um, in this area? You know, there was in power for you know more than a decade. So I have to disagree with you there, Ash. And I agree it's about the cost of living. And, you know, I, I've been speaking to some businesses. Businesses have had to jump through hoops. Some have gone bankrupt to try and actually meet these targets. And, and it's just wrong. You know, the, the economy has been trashed through the war in Ukraine and also COVID. You know, we actually need and to... And your last party leader. Oh, no. You, you Come can, on. No, you cannot say that. She's actually been proven right with her <laughs> economics, actually. Um, but but also, you know, the country and globally um, have, have been through um, this unprecedented times. You've got to allow the country to recover economically. And you don't do that by actually putting more measures in place that make people poorer and actually where they've got to change the heating system, change the cars. You know, um, I've got nothing, nothing against actually looking at um, different resources because to me, um, for energy security, that's so important. Quick thought, Ash, because we're running out of time. I mean, very quickly, we're seeing the impact of climate change on food prices now with olive oil and tomatoes. That's going to get worse. And unless Britain does absolutely everything it can to reduce its share of the carbon budget, we're going to see that get worse. No. Now, we played that clip to the end because I wanted you to see, you know, Ash Sarkar's very considered point that ended the debate. But um, I actually... Do you want to focus on something else, which I found a little bit more entertaining? Her facial expression when Jenkins said this about Liz Truss. She's actually been proven right with her <laughs> economics, actually. Um, but but also, you know, the country <gasps> and globally um, have, have been through um, this <laughs> unprecedented times. You've got to allow the country to recover economically. There is nothing more cutting than that face. Really, really dismissive um and and well deserved ash can do such a good dismissive impression i'm so i'm 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 terrified if she'll ever do it to me um because that is that is a put down and a half let's wrap up thank you for watching this evening um we'll be back tomorrow from 6 p.m for now you've been watching navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support